Exciting. We get to start a new series. Isn't that fun? Amen. Yeah. Everybody's, as long as we're having fun, right? That's the, one of the things we try to do here, I don't know if it's the main thing, but the, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, as we look at this, you know, this is probably one of Jesus' best known teachings, uh, but it's also probably the least understood, <laughs> which is, uh, and one of the least obeyed, I think, as we look into it. it it's a, uh, we're going to take this uh, fairly slow. I think we've got about 20 weeks to look through this. Um, it's really what we call a, a discourse uh, on kingdom living. Yeah, it's uh, Matthew's gospel is really about the kingdom. Uh, they're all that, but Matthew hits it maybe more than the rest of them do. Uh, and the, the problem we get into it, it, it's, it describes the kind of righteousness he expects, but we kind of forget that a lot of times it's kind of like we were talking at the, the welcome you know, it's about motive a lot. What's your desire? Uh, that's that's the key uh, about a lot of this. Uh, it's not, in, you know, we Marcus just prayed that. We just sung that. We only boast in the Lord. You know, there's that idea, if you think of like a pendulum swinging, uh, when it comes to Christianity, we're always going to try to keep right where the Bible is, that we we fall short, but we are called to a life of obedience. And what we tend to do is that goes one way, where it's like obedience doesn't matter. All that matters is you believe. That's not biblical. Belief is important, but obedience does matter. In fact, we're told that loving God is shown by how we act. Uh, so we go that way, or we come the other way, that obedience is the only thing, and that's how you're judged, is by how well you perform. But the gospel's in the middle. You're not judged eternally by your performance. You're judged by Jesus' performance, which is what grace is all about. But because you have that, and the Sermon on the Mount will teach us, this is how I want you to act. Uh, so it's being part of the family. We'll see that even going into the Beatitudes. You're going to see that so quickly. We miss the Beatitudes. They're kind of cool. They're poetic. They're very Old Testament-y. But uh, he expects this from his followers. Uh, it's not just like, well, you know, here's the goal. You'll never reach it. And wouldn't that just be mean? Do that to a little kid, you know. All you have to do is, you know, mow the lawn and trim the hedges in 30 minutes, you know, a three-year-old, and then you, and I'll be happy with you. It's like, well, that's expectations. Does God do that to us? Well, here's the standard. You'll never reach it. You got to be careful with that. I don't think he's, he's doing that, but how we reach it is different. So what's he doing here? He's, he's and we'll look at audience in a minute, but, you know, too often in churches, and, and we've talked about that a little bit already, we don't see counterculture, but conforming to the culture. And there's nothing wrong with having the culture in the church as long as it lines up with the Bible. But this was always something that God did. And that's why this Sermon on the Mount has such an Old Testament flavor. You go back to Leviticus 18, and the Lord spoke to Moses. So this is obviously the Mosaic Covenant saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall do not do as they do in the land of Egypt. So don't do what they do. That's kind of the idea here where you live. You shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan. So not where you're from or not where you're going. Don't do that. To which I am bringing, you shall not walk in their statues. You shall follow my rules and keep my statues and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So you have that in there. But again, it's that, notice it, it's interesting way, walk in them. You know, that walk word. We kind of talked about following Jesus. It's, it's how you live, not just what you do. 
uh, and, and how you think. And so the key verse, and we won't get that for a few weeks, but you go to chapter 6 right before the Lord's Prayer, don't be like them. Same thing we get in Leviticus. You know, and I know that sounds kind of bad now. You know, it sounds like we're separatists, you know. Don't be like them, you know. <clears throat> but if you understood Egyptian religious ideas, Canaanite religious ideas, and then read the Internet or a paper and culture, it's a lot of culture out there, we don't want to be like them. doesn't mean that them aren't going to be obviously changed by us. We'll see that later. It's part of what we do. So you look at the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's presented as a sermon. Hence the name. And now you learn something, right? It's, a, it's presented as something that Jesus gave. Now, he may have preached it more than once. Um, I remember when I was, uh, it's harder when you have to have the same people each week. You've got to come up with something new every week. You know, it's kind of, it's not that hard, but it takes more work. Uh, when I was doing, they call it pulpit supply, and those little churches around Austin, Texas, you know, you could preach the same sermon every week if you wanted to. Kinda, I didn't do that all the time, but you could, you know, and I wonder if Jesus preached this more than once. Or did he preach it in parts? You know, we do have in Luke 6 a shorter version of it. Uh, so, you know, my opinion is he probably did preach this more than once. Uh, maybe he did just do portions of it, but it's presented as a sermon, and that's the way we should read it. So I'm going to read through verse 12. We're not going to get through verse 12 today, just to kind of give us the flavor. Now, kinda, you always kind of get context. Matthew 4 starts with a temptation. Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. Uh, if he didn't remember reading that, he does not give in. Um, Satan leaves with his, if he has a tail, tucked between his legs and gets out of there. Uh, then he begins his ministry. He starts calling some disciples, kind of talking with the kids. And then he starts teaching and healing. And then the Sermon on the Mount is here. So he's into his ministry, but it's pretty early in his ministry. So he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So it kind of gives us a context to who he's talking to, right? His disciples. Now, that may mean just at this point, the 12 weren't even picked yet. So anybody that wants to follow him or has a desire. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so th they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as I said before, you, 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 who is you? He's talking to disciples here. He's talking to people that really want to take him seriously. And, you know, I don't know if he went through the Carnegie, how to win friends and influence people here. Because, it, you know, when you say blessed are you, when you're persecuted for my name's sake, there's something there, isn't it? It's like it's implying that that's probably going to happen. So this is very relevant. It depicts the behavior Jesus is going to expect. It's just not a pie-in-the-sky kind of idea. But it's, it's not impossible, but it's not simple either. I've heard people, I mean, I've even heard people say this, I just live by the Sermon on the Mount. And I'm like, well, you must have never read it. Because that would be really hard. 
I mean, to actually keep it all the time, you know, it's 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 tough. You talk about the bar. You know, we we sometimes look at the old covenant as if it's a covenant of works. It's not. Never really was. Uh, it had that in there. Yeah, keep my statutes. But that, if you read through Deuteronomy, it's always to love Him, to be in connection with Him. It was always by grace. You know, why did they have the sacrificial system? If you could just keep the rules, right? You don't need any mercy because you can just do it. It's already there. And so we look at that and we think, you know, the Ten Commandments, I'll just follow those. It's like the Ten Commandments are candy compared to this. You know, that's the thing. You ever think about that? In one way, Jesus makes it easier, right, because he shows what grace is by the cross. It makes it easier than sacrificial animals. Um, much easier, this is the final covenant and all that kind of stuff. In another way, it makes it much harder because the bar goes up. You know, we're going to see it later, you know. You have heard, you know, you're not supposed to murder. And we'd all say, sounds good. But I say to you, even if you get angry, you know, it's like, wow. That kind of makes me mad. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's, that's a little higher bar, isn't it? Uh, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So it's practical. It's not impossible, nor it's simple, but only through rebirth. This is disciple stuff. This is John 3 stuff. You know, John 3, 3, we should all know this one, right? No one can even see the kingdom of God, which is what this is all about, unless he is, finish it. Unless, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, born from above. Something has to happen to the normal course of human nature for you to be able to even want to do this, let alone be able to do it. And it's that, that's the, the key here. If you don't get that, Sermon on the Mount is going to make little sense. It is, it's actually, it's just way over the top. There's stuff in here, I'm like, you got to be kidding me. I mean, the murder thing, I think I, I've, so far I've been able to keep away from that one. But the anger thing, not so much. But again, it's not, oh, I, I don't do it well, so that's okay. That's not what he's saying. You know, it's the old idea of, of what, if you sin and you're angry, what do you do after that? you just like, well, you know, grace. No, you try to stop it by the power of of the Spirit by the power of the one in you. So that's why this starts this way. So we get to the Beatitudes. Uh, this is the biggest misunderstanding, I think, is they're not eight separate groups of disciples. you got the peacemakers over here. you got the pure in heart over here. you got the mourners over here. They're kind of annoying to be around. But you know, it, that's not the, the poor in spirit. No, these are, these are eight qualities of one group. This is essentially what every Christian ought to be, and it just sequences through, and we're going to do that. We'll do the first four this week. We'll do the next four next week. And when you get it that way, it's like, oh, this makes sense now. Because do you really want to stay poor in spirit the rest of your life? That's, that's where we start, and we'll look at why. But you look at these characteristics, blessed, makaros, actually the word is happy. And the way we call them the Beatitudes is because beati means happy and or blessed in Latin, and that's why they're called the Beatitudes. But it's not a subjective thing. That word happy now for us just means kind of like how we feel at the moment, right? This is deeper than that. It's got subjectivism to it, um, but it's based on not on the circumstances that we're in. I remember, and I never can remember who that was, when I drove from Waukee to downtown Des Moines for 12 years, 17.1 miles to my parking spot, uh, I'd listen to whatever, I, you know, Christian radio or 
whatever you could. And there was a guy I listened to. I can't remember. I think it might have been Derek Prince. But anyway, he, uh, he would always have this, you know, he says, well, how are you? See, he'd ask somebody, how are you doing? And they said, well, pretty good under the circumstances. And then he'd say, what are you doing under the circumstances? I thought that was just a good way. Why is that, you know, burden? Why aren't you trying to deal with that? Uh, under the, so the circumstances of our lives can make us happy or sad, but that's not what this word's talking about. This is based on God's blessing towards us. So if you're going through rough circumstances, the blessing doesn't go away, right? It's that foundation. It assumes a relationship with God. If you don't have the relationship, none of this is going to make sense. It, it, that, it's like even a desire to have a relationship makes this start to make sense. So they all belong together. You get, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple, these all belong to you. And it kind of sequences out how, the, how it works. It's almost like, you know, you think about we go to John 3 or Ephesians 2 or all, you know, Acts 4. We try to figure out how do I come to faith? This is not a bad place to go. What do, how do I need to start? What does it start to look like? And how does it end? Well, that's pretty much all in the Beatitudes, which is pretty cool. So it's almost like Jesus knew what he was doing here getting this started. And I don't know about yours, but, you know, this is kind of cool. It's all red, right? All red letter. We talked about red letter, but, you know, it's, it's, this is coming from uh, the lips of Jesus. So, it's deep, precise, and concise teaching on the new covenant. So, what it does is it sends us to Christ to be justified by the Spirit through grace, and then sends us back to the law to be sanctified. You know, First John, how do you know that you love God? Or, John 14, Jesus in the, in the upper room. If you love me, keep my commandments. Hmm. That's kind of what he's talking about here. So, the audience, them, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Well, who is them? Them is his disciples, people who want to follow him. This is the them. So the essence of the relationship was one of trust in er of every area of living. That's what we talked about at the children's sermon. It, the idea of what does it mean to be a disciple. Its goal is to be like his rabbi in knowledge, wisdom, and ethical behavior. That's the way that worked back then. We see that model. And I know it's tough because he's not here in flesh, but we, have, we can be his disciples through that. And it presupposes an acceptance of the gospel that you realize that you need something that you don't have. And back to Ephesians 2. We are saved by grace through faith. How are we saved? By grace. Don't mess these up. You're not saved by your faith. Nobody ever was. You're saved by the grace of God. It's activated by your faith. You never earn it. It's not your own doing. He's a gift of God. And then if you go on in Ephesians, what does it say? We are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Well, it's after the grace that you do the good works. Back to the Sermon on the Mount. Got to get in the family first before you start trying to follow the things that the Father wants. So this is in the background. It's as two, so you, now we have an audience. We, have, we know who's talking. Then we can get an actual relationship to God. So the first four kind of step through the relationship you have to God and how you get in it. I mean, I, you probably asked that yourself. You may be asking that now. You may have people ask you, how am I saved? How do I get in a relationship with God? Well, we're going to find out here today. So that's kind of nice. So it's thought, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's pretty cool. And this is an Old Testament thing. 
poor in spirit. What's another word for that? Well, if you look in Isaiah 57, the high and lofty one who lives in eternity, the holy one says, I live in the high and holy place, and those whose spirits are contrite and humble, I restore the crushed spirit of the humble and receive the courage and revive the courage of those with repentant hearts. This is kind of, it almost sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? What's the key? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It's got something to do with humility, right? You see Jesus doing this in, in Luke 4 when he comes in probably his first sermon. So if you ever want to know where his first sermon was, he did it at hometown. Wouldn't that be pretty cool? He goes to Nazareth. And you can see this in verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Does that mean he's not going to proclaim good news to people who have some bucks? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's flavor. And you remember as we talked about that when Jesus comes on the scene and at Christmas time when we talk about these things, you know, they were looking maybe for more of a political Messiah because they were taking these words maybe too literally. Do you remember any time when Jesus came on the scene and went into a prison and got people out? Do you remember any time when he went and he started a, people to get them new jobs? Now, neither one of those are bad, especially if they're in prison and they shouldn't be. But maybe he's not talking about liberty to captives of being captive in a kind of a benign way, in physical way, but the captive of sin. You know, that's, and that's, this is what he's picking up here. So when we look at this this is always what he was doing. This is what he came and proclaimed that he was going to do. He's going to release the captives. He's going to give sight to the blind. He actually did that. But again, that's probably metaphorical too, isn't it? He did that. We know he did that. He had quite a few blind people he healed. But what's that pointing to? You know, so you can, the scales of sin and fallenness fall off your eyes and you get and you can see the truth of the gospel. So this is the start. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge our spiritual poverty before God. This is how you start. This is how the Christian life always starts. Because you're not going to repent if you don't feel guilty, right? You're not going to repent if you don't think you're guilty. If, you're no, if you don't see, and that's, you know, in Isaiah again, the Holy One is saying this, you know. Think about that. What happens when the best of all people in the, in, in the Bible really get a glimpse of God? They usually get on their belly. They just, Isaiah, John, Peter, all of them. Why? Because Moses, don't do that. <laughs> I can't take that. You, you, you realize who you are before God, and that's how it all starts. That's why theirs is the kingdom of heaven, because you start by seeing who you really are. Am I truly someone that is worthy of having an eternal relationship with the Holy God? And the first, if you really understand this and you, you're poor in spirit, you start realizing, no. And I guess this really never stops. Just don't get carried away with it. <laughs> don't, don't always beat yourself up. Just realize that it's grace. So the kingdom of God is given to those who acknowledge that they can offer nothing to God except their humility. You know, what is that song? Nothing in my hands I bring simply to 
my Lord, I cling, something like that. I probably messed that up. But you know what I mean? There's nothing we can bring. It's not like we come to Jesus and say, look what I did. Look who I am. You know, we see that in the Gospels. It's like, you think he's impressed? He created the universe. He's not impressed by you. He might be happy that you did something good, but he's not impressed. So that's the start. You realize where you start, where you set. You know, you gotta, something's got to happen in your life, the rebirth of John 3. And then you get to the, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't think it's necessarily bad to take this when you're going through a time of mourning. I mean, that's in the Bible everywhere, obviously. But that's not really what it's talking about here. It's not so much the sorrow of bereavement, but the sorrow of repentance. Okay, now you know you're a schmuck before God. That's a Yiddish word, if you didn't know that. It's kind of a German-Jewish thing, uh, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so you, you realize your station before God. He is here, you are here. That's where you start. And then what are you mourning? Well, you're mourning the fact that you're here and he's here. You realize that. Okay, now we got, you know, it's anytime you give people the gospel, you almost have to give them the bad news first, right? Think about Jesus in Mark 1 when he comes on the scene. He, what does he say? The kingdom of heaven is upon you. Repent. Well, what do you have to do before you repent? Poor in spirit, mourn your sin. This is what this is. The comfort comes from repentance. This is repentance, second stage of the spiritual blessing. It's one thing to be spiritually poor, but you can't stay there if you really want a relationship. Because at this point, you still don't deserve one, right? It's another thing to mourn over. You see this in Psalm 51. You, if you remember the context of this, David had, as we say, screwed up royally. I mean, he got, he messed up two of the Ten Commandments in one day. That's pretty good for a king. That's why we call it screwed up royally, right? He did murder and adultery in one fell, or how they say, one swell foop. Yeah, so Psalm 51 is after this happened, after his adultery with Bathsheba and his, I don't know what degree murder this is, but he puts Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, on the front lines to make sure he gets killed. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He understands he's spiritually poor right now. He knows that. And I like, it, it gets you, and I'm like, well, I don't know about that. Did he sin against anybody other than God there? I think he sinned against Uriah. I think he sinned against Bathsheba, and I think he sinned against this whole people. But what's he mean here? Being reconciled to them can't really even happen. Uriah is dead. There's only one solution here, and that's being reconciled back to God. And he sees that. So this is essentially acknowledge and mourning over your sin. This is what he's doing. And again, you remember Jesus is a consummate Jew. This is all Old Testament stuff because the people he's talking to are Jewish people for the most part. Is there enough sorrow for sin among us? You know, that's the thing. Do we just, sometimes we take, we sing about God's grace and the cross, and that's great. And I'm not trying to tell you, well, you just need to feel worse about your life. I don't want you to get that out of it. That'll come. <laughs> the feeling will come if you understand the reality, right? Think about it. Any relationship you have. Uh, I mean, if you go to Omaha and somebody flips you off because you cut them off in traffic, I probably won't remember that in 30 seconds because I don't know them. I have no relationship with them. 
And if I cut them off, maybe it was deserved. I don't know. But if you're in town and you do something to somebody or in your own family or in your own church or neighborhood, you know, that, now you want to rectify that, don't you? And that's the idea here. You know, if you really know who God is, well, you, you want to you make him proud. You know, that's what we're looking for. So don't go back home and think, well, I just need to feel sufficiently guilty for my sin. I think it's more like a spanking than a, in the corner, maybe. You know, put him in the, you know, God puts you in the corner until you feel sufficiently poorly and bad. I think he just kind of swats us and then we move on. Uh, that's kind of the way it works. And only true comfort will only come from true forgiveness. It's all about reconciliation. So that's, so you're poor in spirit, you're humble, you see the kingdom of God because the Spirit's working in your heart, poor in your spirit, rich in His. You start realizing and mourning the fact that you have a disconnect from the Holy God and your sin, and you repent, and then you start realizing your true self, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Because we see that throughout Scripture that those who believe inherit something, right? Jesus even says it in John a lot, inherit eternal life, inherit, inherit. It's like, why inherit? Where do you get inheritance from? Anybody ever got inheritance? Did you get inheritance from neighbors? I guess it could happen. But it's usually your mom and your dad. Well, this is, that's hence the term. The father, you have to be in the family before inheritance comes. That's why he uses this word, inherit the earth. So what's it mean to be meek? This word has kind of changed meanings uh, not completely, but it, uh, I mean, really, it's probably a little bit too blunt, but meek in our, in our context usually just means you're a wuss. That's not what this means. Um, humble, gentle, considerate, courteous. That's kind of what the Greek word means. So really, meekness is a, a essentially a true view of yourself it, within looking how, through God's eyes. And it's expressed in how you treat others. It's a quiet strength of character, but strength under control. It's not picking every battle. It's trying to do things that honor God. So this is the idea. The meekness is like, you know, we've seen that before. It's like you, you do something for God. Um, you know it's the power of God that's helped you do it. And, and that, that's kind of what this meekness is. And if you think about it, so why do we inherit the earth? You know, you look in Psalm 37, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. You know, the land promises is an Old Testament thing. Anybody Jewish here? Um, we could argue the land promises to the cows come home as far as future, and, and that, that's fine. But if you're not Jewish, none of those apply to you, right? Uh, you're not going to inherit parts of Israel because you're not Jewish. Uh, so what? this is for all disciples. So what is this? The weak shall inherit the earth. Well, if you go back to Revelation 21, remember what happens at the end of time? The believers, you have the holy city coming down and the earth and the heaven become the same place and that's where God dwells and he wipes away every tear from our eyes and there's no pain, no sorrow, no sighing. That's it, earth and heaven. I think that's what he's talking about here. And you think about, you know, the earth is ours to enjoy if we realize that it all belongs to God anyway. How did... Uh, Paul put it, Second Timothy, you can't take it with you. <laughs> I remember, you probably remember the great philosopher Crocodile Dundee. 
that was I remember the the, f- the first movie. If if you remember, if you don't, I'm, I don't know if it's on Netflix, but you could probably find it in some 99 cent Walmart DVD bin somewhere. But uh, Crocodile Dundee was an Australian, and uh, this movie is about a reporter coming to his area because he was apparently could wrestle alligators and hence the name and all that kind of stuff. But I remember they're sitting there in the in the bushland in Australia where it's just nothing around, and they're they're on this big rock and. Uh, the lady from New York asked, who owns all this land? And he's like, what difference does that make? He said, you know, the, the tribes people here, the, the white people here, we, we're here, we'll be there, we'll die. What difference does it make who owns it? It's just a different way of looking at it, though. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have personal property. That's not the point. But ultimately, it all is God's anyway, right? And I think we're just caretakers, always. And I think that's the... But we inherit it, meaning we get to use it. And I think that's what this idea is. So already, just in number three, we are, we're getting to eternal life here already. You're poor in spirit. You're guilty before a holy God. You're humble. You humble yourself. You repent. You mourn your sin. So if you, you mourn your sin, you know that you're comforted by the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and then you realize who you really are before God, and then the inheritance is there. That was quick, right? Three steps. The three-step, you could use this if you go to uh, wherever you go to eat. We'll go to eat again, just another commercial message. I think we'll go to El Humidor because I just kind of want a taco, so we'll try to <laughs> get meat out there afterwards. We'll go. It's warming up. It's going to be really nice today, I heard. So, uh, and then you get to the, the last one for today. The last one that talks about, okay, so now, now by the time you get to the third one, you've inherited, you're in the family now. So how now it's going to get, how am I supposed to act myself? And then the next four, next week, we'll see how we're supposed to treat other people. How we're supposed to, it's a little bit of fruit of the spirit stuff. So verse six says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's kind of, that's a very cool verse in a lot of ways. Hunger and thirst vividly express desire, right? I mean, we probably don't see this as much, but in this ancient time, you know, their refrigerators were much less efficient than ours. And food was, and water is always a problem, right? And so if you really hunger and thirst, I've never been there. I've been really hungry. That's just because I only ate one Big Mac, you know. Not to the point that these people were. It's kind of like the darkness and light metaphor you get in John. We got too much ambient light for that to happen. You got to go out like in West Texas and turn all your flashlights off, and then you can see how dark it really gets. And that darkness and light metaphor hits us. But Psalm 61 kind of gives us this idea of hunger and thirsting. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Those people would understand. We kind of get it too. Actually, I'm kind of need something to drink right now anyway. No, no, just kidding. I mean, it does make you start thinking that, doesn't it? So there's a, but we're talking about spiritual hunger, but it's a characteristic of all God's people, and Jesus uses himself as a metaphor for this, doesn't he? Remember the woman at the well? This is really good on him, wasn't it? Using this metaphor, the woman at the well. Event-oriented marketing here. This is good stuff. He says to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So what is this 
hunger, this thirst. It's like, okay, you've got eternal life. What are you going to do with it? Do you want God more? Isn't that the key? Do you want God more? Or do you think, I got enough God. I got my eternal life. I don't need more. Does that work well in other relationships, right? There are relationships out there where people just use each other for a, a day and then go on. How, how does that relationship really, how deep is that? You know, you think about that. No, God wants us to have a relationship with him that starts and never ends. It gets deeper and deeper. So what are they hungering for? Well, not just that they may be righteous, which is true, they want to do, but it's what do you want to do? What is the desire of your heart now? Because if you don't desire to do what God wants, I'm guessing you won't do it. Do you have the will? But, and that's for everything. You know, it's, it's the righteousness that we're supposed to do. We'll get this when we get the salt and light metaphors later. The idea of legal, moral, social, it's not just about us, it's about everyone. We want righteousness to be there. But it's not just looking back at the past sin. That's what we get, you know, you know you do, Jesus does take away those sins, but we must hunger for future righteousness. Where are we going? And again, why do you want to follow what Jesus says? Because you love him. If you love me, keep my commandments. He said it, I didn't. Now think about that. It doesn't mean if you mess up that all of a sudden he's going to quit loving you. Or that you don't love him enough because that's what the grace comes in and the repentance. But it's the idea of what's your desire? What's your desire? That's always there. But we're never going to be fully satisfied in this world, right? That's what we have to always think back at. In this world, we're always going to have trouble, Jesus says. But Second Peter, but according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth. He's kind of looking at Revelation 21 there in which righteousness dwells. It will get to the point where we don't have to have the sin in the way and the outside fallenness and all those things that happen. But we get that. I mean, I, I suppose you do that, don't you? You hunger and thirst for righteousness, and you think, man, how can this world ever satisfy this? I think C.S. Lewis said it best. He said, if you come at a time in your life when nothing in this world can completely satisfy you, you it may just be that you've been made for another world. And that makes sense. That doesn't mean we can't have wonderful times here. It doesn't mean that we don't get pinpricks of glory and holiness and the relationships we have and the love we get to spend. But if that's all you're after, you're going to get it in this life, you're going to be disappointed. I don't think that's pessimistic. I think it's realistic. You know, Jesus said it, like I said, in this world you will have trouble. But he doesn't stop there. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. Why? Well, because we're going to have this inheritance and all this kind of things that come on. So it's not either or that we just kind of dig a hole and just, well, this life's going to be terrible. I'll just wait for it to end. Nor do we think I'm going to be completely satisfied in this life and the, and the heaven doesn't matter. It's, it's both and. Just be thankful for what we get. You know, the relationships that we have with God and with each other here, even though if we go through good times and bad times, we have hope of a future. And we see this in Revelation 7. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, 
and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This is something in the future, but we get some of that now, right? So think about this. We'll look at the rest next week. We'll look at the how we're supposed to treat others, how we're supposed to act because God has called us and we're, we're past the being poor in spirit. We've repented of our sins. We've mourned them. We have the inheritance. We see ourselves as meek. And now we hunger and thirst and desire for what Jesus wants. And if you get that lined up, all the rest of it will be lining up for the rest of your life. Let us pray. Father, that such a wonderful scripture starts us out exactly where we need to be. We thank you that uh, as we look through this uh, wonderful sermon that it starts us and gives us the pieces that only you can give. Lord, as we go forward into this day, may we remember it is only by realizing who we are truly in your eyes that uh, we can have a connection with you. May we remember that, give thanks for it, always hungering and thirsting for the righteousness that only you can give. We pray in Jesus' name.